Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc, researcher, you know it. You know what All we right, haven't yeah. done in a while? We haven't done a deep dive mm. on just any particular disease. Like, like when we go, like if we were to take a particular infectious disease and see how it swept the globe. Uh -huh. I want you to picture this. Okay. The year okay. is 1721. Mm. Okay. Okay. It's a lot of wood, mud, brown, mm -hmm. that stuff. <laughs> a disease. Wait, where, where, where are we though? Where are we? Well, we're with a disease. Just getting okay. off a ship in Boston with a batch of cargo. Okay. Okay. All right. <laughs> so I'm just I'm trying to figure out whether or not I'm a slave right now. <laughs> if oh oh yeah yeah I know I I made it weird. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> if you yes, were infected, okay. yes. you might just think you had a bad cold with a fever, headache, oh, muscle yes. ache, backache. Uh -oh. Oh no! Maybe some uh, GI upset, loose stomach. Any anything uh, else going on? Anything on my skin or? Not initially, but after about a okay, week, gotcha. you notice something different. Rapidly mm. enlarging red splotches appearing uh -oh. Oh, all no. over the mouth. Oh God! Oh, oh, oh then, my mouth. Okay, then okay. your skin starts erupting mm -hmm. with red spots, macules. Oh, okay. All right. Once you start so, to see those within about 36 hours, your body is completely covered by crusty, pus-filled oh, lesions. Oh, gross. Oh, and, and did it start like in and around my chest and stomach, or did it start a little bit elsewhere and then get to my chest and stomach? I believe it started a little bit elsewhere and then spread down. Spread down. So it was... It was centrifugal rather than centripetal, meaning it, it spiraled from the outside in with respect to the center of my body. If you're lucky, these lesions will fill with fluid oh, and they'll gross. eventually burst, scab over, and leave scars. That's the uh, good outcome. Yeah, like, but like horrible permanent scars, like all over your face, body, arms, legs. Yeah, yeah. That's the A plus outcome. If you're yes. unlucky, Mm -hmm. They erupt inwardly, and you start to bleed into the skin and the GI tract and all your mucous membranes. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. And this disease was traveling da -da -da -da, around <laughs> the world in 80 plagues. You never saw it coming. Now that's a segue. <laughs> I wish your segue was quieter. <laughs> and a pretty yeah. big outcome for uh -huh. su such a small pox. 
<laughs> it was a rather small pox, yeah. This week, we're going to be covering <laughs> the history, <laughs> yeah. etymology, pathology, all the fun stuff. All the fun The stuff. disease yeah, that cool. none of you have ever seen in your lifetime and hopefully never will. Yeah, absolutely. Do you know how to there, treat this? No, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> there, there may be a handful of you. There may be um, anybody who was alive maybe in the 1940s. You might have seen it as a kid, or if you traveled abroad, um, in you know throughout the 1950s and 60s, like maybe if you were in the military, um, there's a possibility that you saw some of these cases. But I, I'm guessing the vast majority of our listeners, you know, haven't seen this disease. I certainly have not. Before I continue taking us through this disease as it sweeps through Boston. I believe you requested control of the Wayback Machine for a bit. Yeah, I did. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, where this disease came from and, you know, how we understood it. And I, I know we're going to be talking about the disease itself. And then, of course, prevention. Originally, that was prevention through vaccination and eradication. So I'm happy to kind of fade in and out from that. But I mean, Josh, we're talking about, well, there were two different diseases which looked a lot alike because you'd have horrible fevers and you'd look sick as hell. And then you could have an anthem. Uh, that's not like... Like theme music? Um, no, no, no. <laughs> an anthem? No, no, no. Not, not like that kind of an anthem. You would have an anthem. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. Oh, you mean like health, like health insurance? Like no, no. <laughs> Not not anthem. <laughs> How do I do this over a purely audiological medium? You mean you mean like yeah. a relative of Dorothy and Wizard of Oz? No, 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 no. Okay, we we have done this before. There there are exanthems, and that's not like an anthem you used to have. <laughs> you remind me of an anthem that I used to know. No. <laughs> <laughs> or, or an anthem that belonged to an old girlfriend, an ex-anthem, <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> no, 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 no. This is exanthems, so E-X-A-N-T-H-E-M. Exanthems describe acute rashes that erupt on your skin, okay? So anywhere outside of your mucosa, which are, you know, your lips, your mouth, down low, genital areas, anus, and ananthem, E-N-A-N-T-H-E-M, ananthem, are lesions, just very abrupt, acute eruptions that happen in those mucosal areas. So your conjunctiva, your mouth, your nasal passages, uh, and, you know, for uh, genital area, so in the vaginal canal and in the uh, rectum. That's ananthem and exanthem. So... You, are we clear? <laughs> so sudden eruptions, either yes. inside or outside or the body. Outside. Exactly right. Exactly. So we're going to go back in the Wayback Machine when we knew about measles and smallpox, both where you had a fever just erupting out of nowhere after having a prodrome or just mild symptoms for a little bit. And then you'd have a rash with measles. It would start from your forehead and start to come down. And it would be a papular rash, meaning that it would never turn into a big liquid filled stuff. It would never, it would be solid. And then smallpox, again, fever, headache, and you have that same thing, a rash that would start in your face, in your head, in your extremities, and then, you know, then come inwards to your chest and stomach. And both of them would have an ananthem. You'd have lesions in your mouth, conjunctiva in your throat. And so you have, uh, I'm, I'm going to have a hard time pronouncing this. I'm talking about all the way in 19, not 1910, but 910. All right. So before 1000 AD, Abu Bakr Muhammad Zakaria Razi, or known as Razes in the Western world, he was a Persian physician. And he was the first to write a public, uh, just uh, publish a written account called On Smallpox and Measles. 
Um, and of course, that was in Arabic. And so he was one of the first people to actually describe both of these diseases in detail and distinguish one from the other. So we're actually going quite a ways back in Asia and in the Arabian Peninsula before we really had you know, any recognition of this disease in Europe. And the cool thing that he did really was differentiate between these two and anthems and exanthems and describe them as two separate diseases, which is one of the first things you have to do in medicine is definition. So from there, actually, Josh, I, I know we're going to like skip quite a few years forward in terms of how we understood the disease and described it. Um, you know, in a more recent context, and when we got into modern vaccination and stuff, but we're going as far back as a thousand AD in early in Chinese history. Okay, we've got in a thousand AD the practice of smallpox inoculation, China and India. So the, the uh, <laughs> you're going to love these. We've got Joseph ne- Joseph Needham's. Uh, Needham's Science and Civilization in China. And then the other two authors are Glynn and Glynn, <laughs> who wrote The Life and Death of Smallpox. And they were writing in the 1500s and 1600s, but they were able to trace back. But we may be going back even as far as like 200 BCE in China and India. So it looks like this disease was well described, but not formally and there were already like inoculation practices going back a long long way Uh, i think you accelerated a little bit too much in the way back machine but as long as we're (laughs) in the 1600s do you know oh yeah (laughs) do you know who else wrote about smallpox quite a lot still chinese emperors and stuff like talking about uh inoculation but no i'm guessing you're talking about someone in europe i am uh okay the bard of the times Ooh, oh, we're, we're in Stratford-upon-Avon. That's right. So. <laughs> Shakespeare would mention okay. disease often in his plays, probably because he was literally surrounded by them. Uh, <laughs> things like bubonic plague, typhus, malaria, it really was a disease of the weak. Yeah, yeah, there were lots. <laughs> but striking the biggest fear into everybody were smallpox and syphilis, or smallpox and greatpox. Now, I know what you're thinking. All right. <laughs> okay. And it has nothing to do with the size. <laughs> In this particular case, smallpox is viral and spread by breathing. Syphilis mm-hmm. is bacterial and almost always sexually transmitted. Mm-hmm. Both diseases Contact. both diseases would riddle your body with pustules or known as pox, you know, a pox mm-hmm. on both your houses. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and but syphilis was the great pox because it was the greater fear, not because gotcha. the marks of syphilis were there. But that is a story for another day. So oh, let's so uh, cool. okay. wave goodbye to Shakespeare and great pox and get ourselves yeah. back to the 1700s. Okay. Um, so we've we've accelerated the wayback machine quite a bit but it's okay this thing has a forward and a reverse so we can play with it if we need to we've broken it before though so let's be careful Uh, (laughs) as so as we move forward back to the 1700s as sickness Mm -hmm. swept through the city killing hundreds in a time before modern medical treatments or even a robust understanding of infectious disease okay an enslaved man known only as Wanismus. One Simus? Mm-hmm. <laughs> on, Onisimu? Uh, uh, I think Onesimus. And yeah, this was, it was really strange. I guess he was a gift. He was a Libyan born man. He was enslaved. And he, you know, was, was received to a minister in Boston named Cotton Mather, who's a really famous uh, minister in, in the history of New England. And he had uh, something yeah. Do you know why Cotton Mather was famous? Why was Cotton Mather famous? It's rather well known for a little thing called the Salem Witch Trials. Oh! <laughs> but Onismus was, he suggested a potential way to stop people from getting sick. And intrigued by his idea, Cotton Mather and a doctor 
undertook an experiment to try and stop this plague of smallpox sweeping through Boston. Yeah, and there is kind of a cool, uh, I, I should say, like kind of twist to this and, and why it, it even came up in discussion. Okay. Onismus had told Mather that he had smallpox, mm-hmm. and then he hadn't. <laughs> and then... Well, oh, wait, wait, it, even... Yeah, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. He said he had undergone an operation that had given him something of the smallpox and would forever preserve him from it. And whoever had the courage to use it would be forever free of the fear of contagion. Now, let's hop in the Wayback Machine, Santosh, and you can take us to the Far East and tell us what that operation was and how it eventually spread to... Africa, where I'm sure Wanismus learned of it. Yeah, and and learned of it, it with firsthand kind of experience over there. So I'm going to go ahead and pull the lever so that we hit the hit reverse, because we were in the 1600s coming up to uh, about 1706 when Onismus was brought over to the colonies, right? So we're going to go back to about 1000 AD, although... There may be this practice going on as far back as 200 BCE, depending on who you talk to and what historical uh, facts that you find. But it looks like both from documents in China and India, as well as accounts from European uh, you know, colonists, explorers, whatever you want to call them, that you had this method that was developed where you have the smallpox scab taken from a child who is in the midst of having smallpox or recovering from smallpox. And the what was described was actually grinding up this scab, okay, and then blowing the matter into the nostril. So taking like a small straw, like, you know, narrow bamboo or something like that, and then blowing it into the nostril of another person that could have taken also the sore, ground it up, prepared it, and then put it into the skin of another person. And this was inoculation. This was very early on, recognized maybe as far as 200 BCE, that if you took the scabs from a recovered person or from a person who's actively having smallpox and we didn't quite understand how we prepare it or why we had no germ theory back then. Why does this work? But it was recognized that you could give a chance, a much better chance for the person who received that inoculation to have a much milder form of smallpox and have their risk of death cut way, way down. Okay. So this was recognized all the way in China. We have practices of, vaccination, this type of inoculation going all the way through the Far East, the Arabian Peninsula, and Africa. In the meanwhile, smallpox is spreading. Okay, It's going to North America in the 1600s. We have a colonial epidemic in 1633. Meanwhile, in China, we've got the emperors over there who are actually supporting inoculation and writing treatises on it. Okay, But it took until the 1700s, so 1718, and we've got a lady, Josh. We've got a lady, Mary Wortley Montague. Do you love it? That's a good name. <laughs> All right. So she goes from, uh, I believe, England, and she goes down to Constantinople. Right? Not Istanbul? Not Istanbul, but Constantinople. This was before Constantinople got the works. Gotcha. That's nobody's business but the Turks. <laughs> exactly right. So she had a husband who was an ambassador to Turkey. So she was traveling with him. He had been dis- disfigured by smallpox. And so she had heard about this thing called variolation. She brought her little kid with her. And the little kid got the treatment. She said, hey, Dr. Charles Maitland. She met him and said, hey, can you inoculate my kid? Can you give him you know, this variolation thing? And six-year-old kiddo Edward had the procedure. And then she wrote back to a friend. She said, smallpox is so fatal and so general amongst us is here, meaning in Turkey, entirely harmless by the invention of engrafting, which is the term they give it. There's an old, there's a set of old women who make it their business to perform the operation every autumn. The old woman 
comes with a nutshell full of the matter of the best sort of smallpox and asks what veins you please to have open. She immediately rips open that you offer her with a large needle and puts into the vein as much venom as can lie upon the head of her needle. Every year, thousands undergo this operation. There's no example of anyone that has died in it. And you may believe I am well satisfied of the safety of the experiment. So she writes this, right? (laughs) Sends it out. Um, And now you have the idea of variolation that comes out. 1721, the first English variolation. And Josh, this would continue and continue and be propagated all the way up until we get to Edward Jenner in 1796 when he had a different kind of breakthrough. But we can talk that uh, talk to the people about that in a little bit if you want to you know change the way back machine around all like. right so let's let's head on back to where we were okay. in the early 1700s with Onismus and cotton mather mm-hmm. yeah and zabadile and zebedile bleh. wow this is a really <laughs> hard name to say <laughs> okay i'm gonna get it okay zabadile boylston yeah. Woo. Zabadiah Boylston. Got it. Show off. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not nice. Anyway, <laughs> the operation that you described of rubbing pus from an infected person into an open wound on the arm mm-hmm. yeah. would inoculate this would inoculate the recipient against smallpox. This is not yes. the same as a vaccination, which you also went into. However, right, right. Uh, as you may imagine, Mather and Boylston were ridiculed for supporting a procedure developed by a slave, even course, though yeah. Mather continued to preach the value of inoculation when the 1721 plague swept through Boston. Mm, yes. Zebediah Boylston sprang into action, inoculating his son and several of his enslaved workers against the disease, and then he began inoculating other Bostonians, about 242 of them. Doesn't go into whether this was done with their knowledge, whether they were conscious. For all we know, he could have been running around with a blowgun, sneaking into windows, and being like, Mm -hmm. poof, you're inoculated. But (laughs) of the 242 he inoculated, only six died, one in 40 as opposed to the general population, one in seven. Yes, 18%. And it, it could have been even higher depending on different risk factors for the for the. Well, community. in terms of risk factors, uh, there were other Bostonians because oh, sure. a lot of people feared at the time that this method of inoculation, deliberately infecting somebody with even dead smallpox, would only spread sure. the disease. So okay, right, which is a fair presumption at this time. So they violently opposed Boylston's work. And when I say violently, uh. <laughs> at one point somebody threw a hand grenade into his home. Yeah. I didn't even know there were hand grenades around uh, at this I time, mean, gosh. It's like a Molotov cocktail, maybe. Sure, sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Or, or so a little cannon or cannon. Yeah, that, gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um I mean, you'd have to be pretty strong to heave a little shot put sized cannonball in. But (laughs) he had a grenade thrown into his home. Uh, Shortly after inoculating his son, he was arrested for, you know, child abuse. And authorities released him after he promised to not inoculate anybody else until and unless he had government permission. Right, right. And... Josh, this anti-vaccine sentiment, you know, continued on. We'll we'll talk a little bit later about Montreal as we get closer to the 1800s. But Ben Franklin, 1736, he lost his son. And the people who had that anti-vaccine sentiment at the time actually spread rumors that, oh, you know what? Franklin's son had been vaccinated and he died. And Franklin actually said, no, I never had the chance to inoculate my son and my child died, I'm full of regret right now. He said, my example showing the regret may be the same either way, and that therefore the safer, meaning inoculating, should be chosen. So it was really important even to you know, some of the finest minds in this country that get, get your shot. But a short hop, skip, and a jump in the Wayback Machine 
up to 1796, a mm -hmm. white man and a bunch of blondes will finally get people to sign on to the idea. <laughs> well, and also by sidestepping the issue of using the deadly virus, or they didn't know it was a virus, but the actual, you know, the pox virus that causes smallpox, and using something that's much less harmful in order to produce the same effect of preventing uh, death and disability from smallpox. I said blondes. <laughs> uh, I mean, with like milky white skin. That Those are the ones. <laughs> Coming from perhaps even a land of lakes. No, wait, I lie. More yeah. of a Swiss miss. <laughs> uh, they were American. What Swiss? Although they were, I don't know if they were Swedish well, descendant. I have no idea. <laughs> 1796. We're approaching mm. the... the 19th century um, right edward jenner a name you may or may not recognize noticed right. milkmaids never got smallpox and mm -hmm. yet even from a young age you know did, didn't matter how young or old they were if they were raised as milkmaids they never got smallpox and yet they were frequently exposed to cowpox so oh, yeah. like any good mad scientist he began giving people <laughs> cowpox intentionally <laughs> yeah <laughs> therefore or thereby rendering them immune to smallpox and creating the very first vaccine hey guess what vax comes from vaca comes from cow mm -hmm. every vaccine is kind of on an honor to that very first smallpox cow derived uh injection Right. So before that time, it was either inoculation, meaning, you know, injecting or placing into inoculating, or it was called variolation based on variola, which they didn't know it at the time that they were talking about the virus, but they were talking about the disease variola, um, the, uh, the Latinized name of smallpox. So this, this is when it was coined so um do you know the history of the actual kiddo well i i know the history of the cow it was named La <laughs> okay, it was named tell me about the cow i'll tell you about the kid our priorities clearly yeah. uh, <laughs> the okay. cow that provided the original cowpox was mm -hmm. named blossom and Aww. she did just fine and now her yeah. hide hangs on the wall of saint george's medical school library a gift from Dr. Jenner's family to the hospital where he did his work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I think there have been times, uh, Josh, I'm going to tell you this at the Iowa state fair, we get the, the uh, butter cow, which is carved. It's a big cow that's carved from butter um, and other butter sculptures not, as well. Not the cow that makes the butter for the butter no, cow. No, no. No. Who's the butter? Would, who is the butter yeah, yeah. cow? But there, <laughs> but there have been times when um, you know Blossom has been celebrated uh, a little bit. You know the way we celebrate Balto for delivering all those wonderful vaccines up in Alaska. He doesn't deserve as much credit as he gets, though. As as his friend, Scandal. I forgot Southern. Sled dog but, scandals. Yeah. More things you see, or more things you can learn about in Travel Medicine Podcast. But the breakthrough introduced another dilemma. <laughs> okay, yes. Oh, wait, but can I tell you about the little boy? If you must. <laughs> okay. we, we told uh, people about the cow. I guess they want to hear about the kid. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Uh, here's, here are the people involved. There's Sar Sarah Nelmus. Um, then there's an eight-year-old boy named James Phipps and the cow Blossom. Okay. So Sarah came to Jenner in 1796 with a rash on her right hand. And he said, oh, that's cowpox, which looks a lot like smallpox in terms of like, you know, a little pus-filled or clear-filled vesicle, but just on your hands. And you don't get the horrible fever and you don't die from it. Um, and he said, Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sarah told Jenner that one of her milkers, a docile Gloucestershire cow or named Blossom, had recently been infected with cowpox. And so Sarah's pustules were on the part of her hand that handled the animal's teats. All right. So he wanted to, you know, test the adage. Here's what he did. He took the pus from Sarah's pockmarked hand, okay, and scratched it into the arm of uh, James Phipps. All right. The son of his gardener. Actually. Okay. okay. The kiddo got ill with, with cowpox, but then he recovered. That's fine. So here's the bad part. All right. <laughs> Okay, so Jenner then actually followed up the transmission experiment by taking uh, a, a scab, okay, that he got from a person who got smallpox, okay, and then variolated James Phipps. So he, he infected him with smallpox and he waited for the kiddo to, you know, have any kind of smallpox. And he did, he had mild smallpox. But he survived and he said, hey, you know, it works really well. Now, it's not perfect because, you know, with variolation itself, it's supposed to produce a milder form of smallpox that you survive. But it was a nice kind of like original proof of, uh, I guess, concept if you ignore the horrible, horrible ethical violations. Oh, I've got a story that's going to make him look like a regular saint. Yeah. <laughs> Because, because, great, wonderful, we have Uh a vaccine. Yes. But now a new dilemma comes up, one with which our listening audience may be familiar. Okay. How do you deliver the vaccines to people who need them? Right? Sure. Sure. So because you need to carry at least, you know, they didn't know it was called live virus, but you want fresh, like, you know, stuff from the vesicle or pus. That and refrigeration isn't really available. So within Europe, distributing the vaccine is manageable. People with cowpox would develop these blister like sores filled with Mm -hmm. lib fluid. And Mm -hmm. as you said, Santosh, doctors would open the sore smear the lymph on silk threads or lint, depending on, you know, how wealthy you were, and let it dry. (laughs) They would then head to the next town over and mix the crusty lymph with water to reconstitute it, and then scratch (laughs) the fluid into the arms or legs of people to give them cowpox. But this this led to a problem when doctors tried to vaccinate people who were far away, more than a couple towns, and this could lose its potency traveling even the 215 miles from London to Paris, let alone right. to the Americas. And forget right. about right. Spain, who had a real problem trying to reach its colonies in Central and South America. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and yeah, so this is, this is supply chain. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Okay. a little bit different than we do it today. But yeah. the Spanish came up with a... Uh, pretty ingenious solution okay. uh health officials in the year 1803 devised a radical lauded new method for distributing the vaccine abroad oh okay so this must have been a new like you know containment or you know preservative something like that to make sure that the that lymph what what they called lymph but the the material inside of the vesicle stayed nice and fresh and um, from our standpoint, but what they didn't know, keep the virus, the vaccinia virus that caused cowpox nice and healthy, right? So like a, maybe some brine or, you know, like that so, kind of thing. So they didn't have refrigeration. So they used the next right. best thing. Yes. Orphans. What? <laughs> they took an abandonment of orphans. An abandonment of orphans. <laughs> that's the correct name for a group. And the plan involved putting 
two dozen Spanish orphans onto a ship. Does not say how they acquired said orphans. Oh. Oh, no, no. It gets better. No. what? (laughs) Right before they left for the colonies, a doctor would give two of them cowpox. And oh, after okay. nine or ten days at sea, the sores on their arms would be nice and ripe. So a team <laughs> of onboard doctors would then lance the uh-huh. sores uh-huh. and scratch the fluid into the arms of the next two boys. Oh, and then, oh okay, okay, okay. And then nine or ten days later, once those boys develop sores... The doctors would show up, scratch the arms, and give it to a third pair. And the boys were infected in pairs, you know, as a backup, just in case one sore broke too soon or, you know, somebody died. <laughs> Josh. Over- I'm not doing it. No. Uh, overall, overall, with a good middle management and a bit of luck, the ship would arrive in America just as the last pair of orphans had sores to Lance. The doctors could then hop off the ship and start vaccinating people. Problem solved. <laughs> okay. Um, um, so I'm not happy about this. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. I left out a few details. You oh, probably, God damn it. <laughs> well, I'm sure you want to know like this: who was responsible for this, right? No... Yes. <laughs> it was the king and queen. This is uh, this was known as the Royal Philanthropic Vaccine Expedition. Set sail in November 1803. Uh, uh-huh. So, you're a pediatrician. How old do you think these orphans were? Uh, I mean, you you probably don't want to use live vaccinations on anybody before age one. So, I don't know, like two to five-year-olds? Santosh. That would just yeah. be unnecessarily cruel. Oh, oh, they, they used oh, orphans ages three to nine. And, and squarely within the <laughs> And they chaperone they had a chaperone. Oh yay. Dr. Francisco Xavier de Balmis, his team mm-hmm. of assistants, and the head of the boys' orphanage, Isabel Zendal Gomez, who would care. <laughs> who would care for and comfort them uh, while they were undergoing this. And, oh. and wait, this was like winning a game show. Carlos IV, the king of Spain at the time, made sure. them a few promises. They would be stuffed with food on the voyage to make sure they looked hardy and hale on arrival. You know why? You don't want to convince <laughs> people to get vaccines from a bunch of emaciated-looking sick kids. <laughs> No one would want it. No one would want fluid from the arm of a sickly child. And and not only yeah. would they be fed to bursting, they'd get a free education in the colonies. Oh yay! In the school okay. of hard knocks, but you know whatever. And and a chance at new life with an adoptive family. They were all adopted. See? Happy ending. I would be a little happier if I knew for a fact that they followed through on all of those promises. Oh, did you want to hear about that? Because uh... <laughs> we'll tell you what. Let's take a brief break from our hey. our ship of orphans. What? It's <laughs> fine. Okay. All right. And delve into why it was so important, like why they were willing to just send a linked chain of children across the sea to prevent this disease. What does smallpox actually look like? What does it do? Because as you've mentioned, we've functionally eradicated it. It hasn't been seen in years and we'll get into that shortly. Decades. Yeah, absolutely. Why Santosh? Was this such a big deal that, you know, they were people and countries were willing to make these kinds of sacrifices before we sit and, you know, chuckle at the terrible ethics of the sure. time? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Th- that has to be put into some context. You're right. We shouldn't completely demonize these folks. But yeah, this was the horrible, horrible epidemic in children during the 16th and 17th centuries coming into the 18th and 19th centuries as well. And Josh, what would happen is, and you know, we're talking about eradication in 1926 in, in the United States, all the way up to full eradication in 1978. So this isn't all that long ago. 
but you were expected to have a certain number of diseases by the time you reached your majority. Okay. If you lived in Europe, especially, but all across the globe during these times. So would you get measles? Would you get chicken pox? Yeah. You'd get rubella. Smallpox was just one of these diseases that you got. And you either rolled the dice and you got better or you rolled the dice and you got really bad. Okay. So imagine Josh, uh, winter and spring, just about then, and you would be a kid or less likely, but sometimes a young adult, because this would just propagate through children so quickly that, like I said, you were almost expected to have had it if, you know, you, you got it to a certain age, right? So you, you had an area, uh, with a, a lot of kids going on. Okay. And then you have the early symptoms that are coming in, sneezing, coughing. You don't quite have the uh, fever yet. Okay. But you may have these lesions coming in the mouth of the throat, the enanthem that I told you about. And now you have really high infectivity. So you're a little kid and you're infectious and you don't have any vaccination going on, you've got a 50-50 chance. So if you had enough kids in the family and you were living in close quarters and all that kind of a thing, pretty much everybody would catch smallpox. So either from a respiratory secretion, you'd cough, you'd sneeze, or you would rub up against somebody because the scab, not, not the scab, sorry, the early little vesicle that that was coming up on the skin, that contact with that fluid could also spread smallpox virus. Okay. So what would happen then? You know, what were the the clinical features that would come in? You would start off 10 to 14 days from when you met the person with smallpox. You've got two to four days with high fever, severe headache, backache, malaise. Okay. And a lot of the time you'd be vomiting and you have a little bit of diarrhea occasion. Fun stuff, right, Josh? So far, here's a big problem. You don't know what disease you have yet. You could have measles, you could have chicken pox. All of these looked very, very much the same. So now even in terms of treatment, if you had any treatment, you don't even know what you're treating. Now we're going to get into different types. We got ordinary type. Okay. And for our sake of discussion right now, we'll talk about a flat type, hemorrhagic type, and then another weird one called variolacine eruption. So the eruptive phase that you got in the ordinary type, as we said, this was a centrifugal rash. So the rash would start away from the center of the body and then crawl its way to the center of your body. So first on your mouth, the tongue, the palate, you'd get these papules, which were quite painful. You'd have it then these eruptions on the face, your proximal extremities, so your upper arms and your upper legs, okay, now it would start to spread. So it would come into your chest and stomach and your back and then out to your le- your hands and your feet. You had told me like what I got at the very beginning of this episode. First, you have what's called macules. These are flat. They were called herald spots, right? So it's kind of like uh, the silver surfer. He was the, hel- the herald of, of uh, Galactimus. Galactus. Nerd alert. (laughs) Right. Uh, The Silver Surfer was the herald, right? He'd tell him that, oh, he's coming. Okay, so you knew, okay, now you saw the small macules. They turned into papules. These are solid bumps, day two. Day four to five, they turn into vesicles, clear fluid filled. Then pustules where the white cells would come in and they would turn into a milky liquid that looks like pus. If you're very lucky, just a few lesions. More commonly, you had thousands of lesions all over your body. They would crust over in about two weeks. And then they'd heal and you'd have these scars and depigmented things all over you that you'd carry around for the rest of your life, kind of showing a badge that you had gotten sick. So this was the ordinary type. You could have a confluence of a rash on your face and forearms, you could have a discrete rash occur with normal skin between the pustules. But here's the problem that would happen in rare cases, okay? Where would death come from? You could get the hemorrhagic type. Now, instead of getting better, you get the virus going everywhere and causing just global inflammation. You get heart failure, diffuse bleeding, and now the virus is attacking your bone marrow, 
and you can't make white cells, you can't make platelets. This was, Josh, called sledgehammer smallpox. In three to four days, you were dead. You were completely toast, okay? Now, who was really vulnerable to this? Certain kids, yes, but pregnant women, all right? Because you have a lowered immune system during pregnancy anyway. Okay. And it was really hard to recognize because you didn't know that all of a sudden the disease would take this hard left turn this way and leave you with this. Okay. So this was the one that everybody was afraid of. However, if you even had the ordinary type of smallpox, what could happen? You could get horrible secondary bacterial infection of the skin with group A streptococcus, um, with staphylococcus aureus, okay? The ananthem, where you got lesions over your conjunctiva of your eyes, could lead to keratitis, corneal ulcerations, and this was a very common cause of acquired blindness. Likewise, you could get inf invasion into your joints and get a horrible viral arthritis, secondary bacterial infection into your bone and joints called osteomyelitis, and you could lose the use of a limb. You know, of course, Josh, if you got an amputation, that's it. One in four chance of death, right? You could get descent of bacteria into your lungs, so get a pneumonia. And then for boys, orchitis, so inflammation of the testicles and uh, infertility. And the worst was encephalitis. If the virus or just your body's inflammation invaded your brain or, and you know, you'd have hallucinations, bizarre activity, and eventually, you know, infection of the brain would lead to, you know, a horrible, horrible type of death. So this was the worst kind of things that we were talking about. And in that day and age, Josh, more than anything else, you didn't know which way a kid would go until it was way too late. And you had nothing that you could do about it except to keep the kid isolated and, you know, stay with them until they passed away. And it was, it was just awful. And it was every single soul who, you know, was around got affected by this. To give you an idea of the numbers, during the 18th century, the disease would kill about 400,000 400, Europeans a year, including mm. one year, five of the reigning monarchs. It was mm. responsible for a third of all blindness in Europe. And between worldwide, between 20 and 60% of all those infected died from the disease and over 80% of infected children. Wow. So yeah. you can imagine why they were willing to risk 22 orphans <laughs> to, to treat all these people with the modern day Jenner vaccine. So yep. let's return to our ship as it arrives in Caracas, Venezuela in March, 1804. This almost is our a ship full later. of orphans. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, our gotcha. ship full of an abandonment of orphans. <laughs> Stop calling them that. And by the time it pulls into port, just a single sore is left on the arm of a single boy. The other mm. boys lived. They just had resolved the infection. Uh, yeah, and this is the nice thing about <laughs> cowpox. It's very mild. But it was enough. Francisco Xavier de Balmas immediately started vaccinating on shore, focusing his initially limited supplies on children. His team vaccinated 12,000 people in two months and then wow. split into two teams. And again, remember, this is 1804. This is before the CDC, the WHO. Like, this is guys on horses and ships. He yep. mm -hmm. marched up through Mexico, where he vaccinated around 100,000 more people. And true to the king's word, midway through the journey, he dropped off the original orphans with their new families in Mexico City. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Right? Adorable Yay. ending. But it gets better. <laughs> okay, okay. Then he headed to Acapulco to prepare for another vaccine expedition, this time to treat the Spanish colonies in the Philippines. This was a man on a mission. Okay, gotcha. And in order to continue carrying out that mission, you know what he needed? What do you need? More orphans. <laughs> <laughs> but this time, you okay, know that, okay, that the king okay. comes from cowpox and stuff. Why not find some milkmaids? <laughs> okay, all right. 
This time, I, I lie. He did pick up a few. <laughs> he did pick up a few dozen more boys in Acapulco, but this time, instead of orphans, he hmm. hired boys from various families, essentially so raising them as vaccine mules for the journey to Asia. <laughs> okay, so we, I mean, we've got to step up to child labor. So better, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> okay, okay. Vaccine mules. another about another year later in Mm. april 1805 the ship arrived in the philippines and within a couple months balmas's team had vaccinated twenty thousand people across the nation wow In in fact the expedition was so successful that they when Spain said, Okay, you're done, you vaccinated all our colonies, come on home. Balmus, Dr. Balmus, went rogue, became a pirate, and sailed to China in the fall of 1805 and started vaccinating people there. I don't know if how many boys he took with him on that trip, but <laughs> the achievement was staggering. Without any modern equipment or transportation, Dr. Balmas's team managed to spread Jenner's vaccine across the world in less than a decade. Yeah, yeah. So, Josh, during this time, a lot of interesting things are happening around the European and the colonial world. In 1805, Mariana Lisa of Luca, which is Napoleon's sister, uh, over in France, she, as a ruler, tried to make vaccination compulsory. She wasn't able to enforce it. Um, you had Thomas Jefferson. You have to have that, a real good head on your shoulders to accomplish yeah, that sort of thing. <laughs> well, she did up until this point. Uh, <laughs> Thomas Jefferson over in the United States was an advocate of vaccination, and he received a copy of Edward Jenner's work from Jenner's nephew. And he wrote in response a open letter Um, saying that you have erased from the calendar of human afflictions one of its greatest. So I, you know, he was advocating for vaccination. 1813, Josh, a little after what, you know, everything that you're talking about right now, we actually, all the way back then, we had the U.S. vaccine agency that was actually developed, the forerunner to what would now become the Advisory Council on Immunization Practices as part of the CDC, the the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. And as we're kind of coming through, we've got, you know, this decrease in mortality coming down and down and down. And as we transitioned over to vaccination, we changed up, you know, our, our distribution so that we outlawed so britain 1840 actually just banned variolation they said you don't need to do that anymore you should be using vaccination 1853 mandatory vaccines in the uk now that doesn't mean every country did it in fact up until probably the early 2000s uh mm-hmm. sudan was still practicing variolation in a practice called or i should say up until the early 1990s, uh, Sudan was still practicing variolation in a process called buying the smallpox, where if you recall something like the chicken pox parties of a certain period of time's youth, if one, if one child in the village becomes sick, the other mothers will go and negotiate a price to purchase some of the pustules so they can then variolate their children so the kids don't actually play but they'll bring over scarves or things like that and it's a custom that uh lasted for quite a while um right now the process you're talking about started around the 1950s and 60s when sort of the last case uh you know everybody said all right we're just going to vaccinate and the cases continued dropping and dropping and the very last case of indigenous smallpox was October 26, 1977. That's right. Same year Star Wars came out. <laughs> and, and who was infected? A hospital cook in Somalia. Yeah, that's true. Shortly after that, the last big famous lab accident that we had was Janet Parker, who was a photographer um, at the University of Birmingham School in Great Britain. And she was in a dark room 
that was one floor above a research laboratory. And she, out of the blue, got smallpox. And the, the World Health Organization, which had you know, now been working for a while, went to the, the medical microbiology department there that was, you know, working adjacent said, hey, you aren't keeping a very good facility, actually tighten up your safety procedures and that kind of a thing. And the director, his name was Henry Bedson, didn't act on the WHO's recommendations. This was the last, you know, famous case. And it wasn't wild. It was actually a lab strain. And he was grief stricken and he actually committed suicide. He was so distraught and rightfully so that this eradicated thing had killed one more person, you know, through his own actions that, you know, that was it. And not too long after that, 1980, we had an official declaration by the World Health Assembly saying smallpox eradicated. After this tragedy and in part uh, as a result of it, all known stockpiles of the virus in academic centers, businesses, things like that were destroyed or transferred to one of two World Health Organization laboratories, the CDC in Atlanta and the Vector Institute in Koltsevo, Russia. And debate has continued on whether to even maintain these two remaining stocks. Uh, right. Because, you know, as we've pointed out, humans have no natural immunity and the kill rate is about 30%. On that cheery thought, I want you to, you know, look around and thank your local orphan uh, who did uh, just like the sled run to Nome. Only this was the smallpox run to Central America. I want everybody to take away from this from the standpoint of vaccination, you know, Yes, we had to have big, famous cases. We tried compulsory vaccination, instituted mandatory vaccination, and these things really worked. The frustrating thing is we were able to eradicate this, right? But even back then, even in those, you know, what we think of as ancient times in the 1880s and all this kind of a thing, there were still anti-vaccine campaigners. There was a horrible outbreak in uh, Montreal, all right? And there was actually a vaccination act put into place. And outcome after that was a, a terrible riot. But through this, you know, public health pushed and pushed mandatory vaccination until a disease was completely eradicated. We stopped routine smallpox vaccination in our U.S. military in 1990. We, we were able to successfully eradicate a disease, stop billions of deaths, literally. And then when the disease was gone, withdraw the vaccine. This is the life cycle that we like to see. Way back then, they had to deal with people who were uninformed and in opposition to doing the right thing. We got to deal with that nowadays. Well, that's it for this week's Around the World in 80 Plagues. <laughs> As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links for further reading. This show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear a mask, get your shot. And when you have done all of those things, find somewhere to get out of the country or even <laughs> just down the road and happy yeah. travels. Bye, guys. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. 
Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 